0: Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement policy and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom and light. My name is Nick Levy and I'll be your host today. My guest is one of the leading antitrust economists of his generation. He's had an extraordinary career. He's been active in pretty much every area of enforcement. He's advised on many of the leading mergers of the past 30 years Including GDF Suez, Ryanair Aer Lingus, Google DoubleClick, Deutsche Börse, New York Stock Exchange, Universal EMI, Glencore Extrata, UPS TNT, General Electric Alstrom, Disney Fox, Nvidia Arm, Cone Cranes, Carto Tech. He's been involved in some of the most significant Article 102 cases of our time, including matters involving Microsoft, Qualcomm, Google, Amazon, Aspen. And activist. He advises on cartels and follow on damages cases and has given oral testimony before the European Commission and the European courts in Luxembourg, the UK Competition and Markets Authority and Competition Appeals Tribunal, and agencies and courts in numerous countries across the world, including South Africa, Chile, Finland, Portugal, Spain, Germany, France, Israel, and the United States. He teaches at the Toulouse School of Economics, and his bio lists over 100 articles and research papers. He's known in the legal world for his brilliant analytical mind, his dedication and extraordinary work ethic, and his calm under fire. I'm delighted to welcome Jorge Padilla. Jorge, I'd like to start at the beginning. How did you get into antitrust economics and what attracted you to the field?
1: Well, thanks very much. And thank you first for inviting me to this this podcast. I'm delighted to, to be here. So I think that there are three decisions that took me to become an antitrust economist. First, I had to decide to become an economist. And that was an accident because I really wanted to be a mathematician. But, you know, mathematics was not available in my hometown. And my fathers couldn't afford sending me to university outside my hometown. So I was asked to choose something else. And I chose economics. Then the second decision was to become an industrial economist. And that took place when I arrived in Oxford. I actually wanted to be something else. I wanted to be a macroeconomist. But when I got into Oxford, I was told, well, you know, they're good macroeconomists, but people here are really good in industrial organization. You have John Vickers, you have Paul Klemperer, George Jarrow, and many others. So if you really want to learn something here, become an industrial economist. And that's why I became an industrial economist. And the third decision was to, be, to do antitrust, to be a consultant. And again, that was an accident in life. I was happy as an academic, writing my papers on game theory and so on and so forth. And then my father went bankrupt and lost absolutely everything and had a pile of debts. And believe me, as an academic, I couldn't afford paying those debts. And somebody mentioned, what about being a consultant? I had no clue. I got into consulting. And then Microsoft, the Microsoft cases came into Europe, and I was lucky. I had a very close academic connection with Jean Tirole. And Jean Tirole advised Microsoft that I could be a good person to work with them. And that's the beginning of my antitrust economics career. So as you see, three random moments
0: in life. And 30 years on, you're still as active as you've ever been at the top of your game. So what keeps you interested? What keeps you engaged? Well, I think that uh, the economic
1: issues, uh, the economic issues that, that underline some of the recent cases, whether mergers or antitrust cases, are super interesting. Very interesting so one thing that has happened in my career is that i have uh, i have decided to go deeper into the issues in every single case i do much less admin than i used to do in the past and that means that i can approach these cases as a consultant but also as an academic and i am I'm having a second career as an academic now writing new papers and publishing in in top economic journals, but based on the issues that emerge in those cases. So it's just enthusiasm and fascination about, uh, you know, the puzzles that are involved in, in this new generation of cases.
0: You've reached a point, Jorge, where you can choose your cases what attracts you to a particular case?
1: The economic issues at hand, the difficulty, the challenges, whether or not we have a theory ready-made to deal with them or not. So, if you ask me about a typical, you know, horizontal merger in which basically everything has to do with calculating market shares, I'm not attracted, and I'm not particularly good, to tell you the truth, for that kind of uh, for that kind of job. But if it's something about, you know, an interesting vertical story in a platform market where there are ecosystem effects, and I realize that economic theory is not yet there, there you have me motivated, then that's something that I want to do. Because I'm going to do it approaching the problem in two ways. As a consultant, because ultimately and my job is to try to help the client, but also as an academic trying to resolve the puzzles.
0: So let's go back 30 years. We began we began in the field pretty much at the same time when economics was beginning to be spoken about but it's evolved very considerably i've heard you i've heard you describe a series of eras in the evolution of economics and the use of economists in europe for those who haven't had ringside seats over the period can you describe what you see as the main changes over time the principal eras and perhaps pick out some of the leading cases
1: well, once upon a time, there were no economics in, in EU antitrust, at least, or even in EU merger control. I think that it was fairly limited, and I think that it starts basically with, with the century. I think that you know there are a few cases before, and economists got involved, you know, to a limited extent before year 2000. But I think it's in year 2000, and in antitrust, I think that the breaking point is the Microsoft case. And in merger control, I would say that uh, the the breakthrough is are the three decisions of the General Court, then the Court of First Instance quashing, you know, decisions of of the European Commission, and the reforms and the new guidelines. Everything that followed from Monty's reaction to to those to those fiascos, and I think that we started slow. I think that at that point, basically, most of our work was merger control. And doing the sort of things that I actually think that economies are least capable of, that is market definition and and so on. But, you know, then, you know, with the new guidelines, you have new theories of unilateral effects, coordinated effects, vertical effects, conglomerate effects. And some of these new theories require more economic analysis. And not just delineating a market, calculating market shares, and as 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 the Commission was becoming more sophisticated in the application of the of the horizontal and non-horizontal guidelines, I think that you could see us getting more involved, doing more things, and doing things earlier. Instead of being higher in phase two, we were higher in phase one, and then even before phase one, even before pre-notification, sometimes even to do risk uh, assessments. And the same applied in as as competition law in europe was modernizing on the antitrust front 1013 guidelines on anti on, on 102 the guidance i think that that was opening doors for economic analysis and then you know we became more and more active the last big change i think is the is the emergence of private enforcement and and that has uh, revolutionized the the industry because now i think that you know we spend much more time almost in court you know calculating damages and litigating damages than than before the agencies at least in many jurisdictions in many of the for example southern jurisdictions we spend more time in court doing dealing with these cases than dealing with mergers or antitrust cases before the agencies and so those are the main things that I think that have changed, and all these was followed in parallel by you know the evolution of the chief economists team in the and and the commission. I think that to some extent, we get more involved, the more active the economists are in the the agencies. And they did become more active after 2004, and they're becoming somewhat less active these days, which I think may explain why we are spending more time in court than before the
0: agencies. So there's lots to unpack there. But let me start with the chief economist. It's 20 years now, I think, since the first chief economist was appointed. Three questions. How's the role changed? How important do you think the identity of the chief economist is? And what do you make of the recent controversy over the appointment since withdrawn of Fiona Scott Morton? So, first thing
1: is that I think the personalities matter. You know, we have had a number of chief economists. All of them were very different in the way that um, they dealt with DigiComp, with their hierarchy, in the way that they dealt with their people and their team, and in the way that they dealt with with. Practitioners outside the commission. Some of them were more inclined to get their hands dirty in cases. Some of them preferred to do more kind of policy statements. Some of them were willing to, you know, go to to the courts. For example, when uh, when uh, in Luxembourg, some of them sent others there. So some of them were much more willing to play a check and balance role. Some of them saw themselves more like another tool in the in the in the set of tools of the case team. If anything, I would say that going beyond personalities, I think that there has been a trend in which the check and balance role has lost uh, importance, at least from an outside perspective. Maybe it's happening inside, but I think that there is, and 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 you see the chief economist team more as another brick in the wall, if I may put it, by reference to 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 Pink Floyd. And and I think that at the same time, what you observe is that the the chief economist has become less accessible. It was relatively easy to have economist to economist conversations before. That is no longer the case. Those conversations are always mediated by the case team. And in fact, you you cannot even approach them or you shouldn't approach them because it generates kind of, you know, bad vibes. I think that you need to go through the case team and then, you know, they act as the gatekeeper to, to the chief economist team. I have an answer about Fiona, but 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 I see that you may want to
0: no, yes. So it's extremely interesting what you say. Has that made your role less satisfying in some way if you're kept removed from the economists, the possibility to sit across the economists and really thrash out a particular issue or particular model with them? Well, to tell
1: the truth, in my case, I didn't interact that much with them. I, I didn't really like to, you know call them and, and, and lobby them, because I don't feel that I'm a lobbyist. So I always wanted to submit my reports. And of course, then I love to have the opportunity to present those reports. Whether that is in front of the economists only or the economists and the case team, I really don't care. And to some extent, I prefer the latter, because, you know, ultimately, the economists have a degree of influence, but it's, it's, the, it's the case team that uh, that that really matters. But but it is true that, you know, sometimes you miss them in some cases. And what I do at most, you know, what I'm prepared to do is is to basically alert the chief economist, you know, whoever is at that time, we're going to send a report, be on the watch because, you know, it would be important that, I mean, there are difficult issues or issues that are novel and it would be good if you were on the watch. That's, that's as far as I go. So I think that, you know, things have changed, but one can live with that. And
0: Fiona Scott Morton.
1: Well the first thing to say is that Fiona is a great economist and I am really sad about what has happened because I think that you know she must have had a horrible time she has been exposed and uh, and I think that she didn't deserve what has happened uh, I'm not only sorry for her I'm sorry also for a number of other people that were running to become chief economists at the time I think that there is one name that was in the in the french media Juanjo Ganuza who is a personal friend who then you know were characterized poor candidates by a spokesperson of uh, of Digicom. And I feel that that's, that's, that's wrong. So I feel, I feel sorry for what has happened. I think that it could have been anticipated. I think that uh, the idea of having a chief economist from outside Europe was a risky idea. It's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's a risky idea, especially given the times, especially given the focus on strategic autonomy. And I think that is a costly mistake because I don't know what's going to happen now. What are the incentives of people to submit their names to this process that can end up with fiascos like uh, like this one? I, if I was considering, I would have more serious doubts now about you know presenting my name that I had before given you know what has happened. So I'm I'm really sorry for Fiona, and I think that to some extent we have lost an opportunity of having a chief economist that is combative. And, and you know, and that would have been great fun to be, you know, opposite to. So you aren't tempted yourself. Now there's a vacancy. I wasn't tempted. I think that um, you mentioned the many different cases in which I've been involved, most of them opposite to the commission. I think that unless I was prepared to commit not to come back to consulting ever again, I don't think that it would be appropriate for me to 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 you know apply for that for that job and I enjoy my consulting career and I want to continue doing what I'm doing. So yeah. I don't think that is a back and forth you know route.
0: So let's turn to merger control, Jorge. You referred to the trilogy of judgments in the early 2000s where the court overturned three prohibition decisions of the European Commission, Air Tools, Schneider LeGrand, Tetralaval, Cedal. There were then the guidelines, the horizontal guidelines, then the non-horizontal guidelines, the chief economist. And uh, the commission established, I think in a fairly systematic way, a framework that it would apply to the analysis of mergers, increasing reliance on sound economics and hard data and so forth, to a point where I think it's in many cases, it's much easier to identify early on in a case what the dispositive issues are going to be. We've moved into an era where increasing reliance is placed on internal documents. And some, I think, have questioned whether economics and an economist play quite the same role in merger control as they used to. What's your perspective? Do you see your role changing or having changed?
1: Well, let me start from from the end. No, I think that we are as involved as we were five years ago. But it's true that we see much more reliance on on internal documents. Uh, in fact, I think that our data science people at Compass Lexicon have been investigating, you know, on the elements on which the Commission bases its merger decisions. And internal documents have you know, skyrocketed. References to internal documents have skyrocketed in, in in decisions. And I think that that's correct. I think that looking at internal documents is 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 proper. At the same time, I think that the reliance on internal documents has two limitations. One is that the merging parties themselves and the, their potential complainants understand that, you know, emphasis is going to be placed on the internal documents, and and they anticipate that. And as you know, as, as you know, the commission is spending more time with internal documents. You see how. The production of those internal documents becomes much more sophisticated. So, in anticipation, some internal documents are manufactured to say certain things. And what you see is that oftentimes the internal documents end up in conflict with the facts. And, you know, internal documents are very helpful when what they say are plausible and consistent with the facts, but sometimes they don't. So, that's one, one reason why I think that the analysis of the internal documents and facts and therefore economic evidence are complements rather than substitutes. But there is a second reason, which is that sometimes, you know, the internal documents are sincere and they're indeed produced in tempore and unsuspecto, but there are inconsistent views. You know, very often these internal documents refer to predictions about the future. And yeah, maybe business people are better predicting the future than economists, but they're not very good either, <laughs> as we see, you know. When we read the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal and, you know, mistakes are made and forecasts are proven wrong. So you need to balance the different statements and to be able to, you know, weigh the credibility of the statements in different internal documents to come to the truth. And again, that for that, you need facts and you need imp- economic evidence. And that's why I think that we have become – initially, people saw us as substitutes. I think that we're becoming – Complements and a way of disciplining a tendency that I'm sure that you have observed in in cases in which one side or the other cherry picks from the internal documents. I think that facts are are a way of controlling for that,
0: sometimes imperfect, but a way. So, Jorge, as you look back at the economic models that you've generated, the economic work that you've authored, can you pick out a couple of examples of? pieces of economics that you think have made a real difference to the outcome of particular cases. And the reason I ask that is sometimes you hear people say, well, the economics is a wash. The party experts say this, the commission experts say that, and they agree to differ. And what really matters is an internal document or some other view that's expressed. And a related uh, question, perhaps asking you to speak against self-interest, but what advice would you give lawyers and companies uh, when retaining an economist? How should they frame the inquiry to get the best bang for their buck? Very
1: good. So let me let me tell you a few examples where I think that it made a difference. Although I should say from the outset, there are many cases in which economics is a wash. OK, so you present your evidence and the other side either presents other evidence and then everything is obfuscated and there is no way to distinguish between the two or simply, you know, especially in an inquisitorial system. You know, the inquisitor decides that he's not persuaded, and, and that's it. But there are cases in which, uh, you know, our analysis have made a, a difference. Merger control, for example, Kraft Cadbury. Kraft Cadbury, we did a merger simulation, both estimating demand and calibrated uh, merger simulation, and that made a very significant difference. The chief economist of the time, Damien Nevin, questioned that, that evidence, but eventually, yeah, I think that, um, you know, was happy with it. And I think that that helped the deal to go through sometimes you read it in the decision explicitly sometimes it's a little bit between lines but it was there and made a made a difference as it made a merger simulation made a difference in Philip Morris Papastratos which is a relatively small case but it's the first time ever that that I use merger simulation and i think that the commission used merger simulation because we had one of their economies with us learning at the same time that we were presenting that evidence econometrics for example our econometric analysis made a significant difference in ups tnt not at the level of the commission, not with the commission decision, but it was critical for the appeal and, uh, and, and for the, the appeal, both with the general court and eventually with the European Court of Justice. I mean, there were a mixture of substantive and and, and procedural issues, but I think that had not had we not presented that uh, that uh, empirical evidence, I think that the, the outcome would have been different. Article 1013, I would say Star Alliance is clearly the case where I think that our analysis made more more of an impact because we did an analysis of efficiencies, which then the commission took on board and helped to, you know, clear standard alliance without remedies in a number of routes whenever we proved efficiencies above 10% and limit intervention only to those routes where the efficiencies were estimated to be below 10%. And in, in antitrust, I would say that in a number of them, but perhaps the most significant one is Qualcomm, Qualcomm Sapphire recent exclusivity rebates case, again, not at the decision level, uh, but at the commission level, but in the general court. And then there is not going to be ECJ because the commission decided not to appeal it because of our as efficient competitor test was in a sense, I wouldn't say endorsed. I think that the criticism of two our as efficient competitor test was rejected. And so I think that 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 helped. I have other examples and I also have examples in which we have done lots of analysis that I thought was great and was, you know, and was dismissed.
0: And the question I had about how best to engage an economist to get the best bang for your buck.
1: Well, my sense is that, frankly, what the, firm, what the parties need to do, what the firms need to do, what the law firms need to do, is to hire economists as economists. In other words, sometimes you have the impression that uh, they hire you as a lawyer or as a lobbyist. You know, what we do and our comparative advantage is to do economics. You want to do econometrics, hire an economist. You want to do some economic theory, hire an economist. But if you want them to do some other things, well, there are people that are better qualified. You know, I'm not a good lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a good lobbyist. In fact, I'm terrible as a a lobbyist. Uh, I only know how to do economics. So hire me for that purpose. And that means that if my selling point is I have lots of connections with the commission, well, that's irrelevant. If my selling point is, you know, I have lots of experience in how to run these cases as a matter of law, that cannot be the element of choice. What should drive your choice is whether I'm a good economist, I'm able to do my analysis, and I'm able to convey and explain that analysis in simple terms, in terms that a non-economist can understand. I think that that's what, uh, what I would say. Focus on the economics, on their communication skills.
0: Thanks, OK. That's good advice. Let me turn to the uh, objectives of merger control. You're one of the leading uh, thought leaders, I guess, in the field, and you'll know well the neo-Brandeisian critique of the consumer welfare standard. Uh, what's your opinion on that critique? How sympathetic are you to the view that merger control has been too permissive and agencies have allowed some markets to become too concentrated?
1: So I think that there is an element of, uh, of truth in what they're saying. I think that, um, especially in the U.S., and for many, many, many years, the agencies have focused fundamentally in minimizing type 1 errors, that is, in, in, in not intervening in case, you know, intervention would generate, would not be justified. And perhaps we have downplayed type 2 errors, file false acquittals. So I'm sympathetic to that view, that perhaps we need to pay more attention to type 2 errors. Now, I think that the neo-Brandecians overreact that problem and uh, you know they see that that issue and instead of trying to address the problem as such they try to demolish the building get rid of the consumer welfare standard get rid of economics get rid of rationality move the antitrust from you know an area in which you are driven by facts and, and economics into an area of ideology and it's not surprising because I think that the neo brandesian movement, is part of this woke movement that you observe in more generally in politics and and, in, and, and uh, in philosophy and in sociology and and that movement rejects the enlightenment it's not only that it rejects economics it rejects the enlightenment it thinks that rationality is a problem and it thinks that we need to be focused on emotions on ideologies and so on and And that explains why the rejection to science and the doubts about the experts and so on and so forth. They see conspiracies from experts all over the place. I think that that's that's wrong. I think that that's an overreaction. And my concern is that eventually we'll trigger a pendulum effect and we may end up in a situation that is perhaps even more biased towards non-intervention than the one that we started with. Oh, hey, that's
0: very interesting. How do you think Commissioner Versteyer's concept of fairness fits into this question? Well, I think that um, it's not necessarily
1: linked to the neo Brandesian movement. I think that when she started mentioning fairness, the way I understood it is we need to make sure that we intervene to protect the citizen, to protect the well-being of the citizen, to protect his, his welfare or her welfare. And I think that that's perfectly consistent with the consumer welfare standard. That's, you know, what we try to do. We try to ensure that the market works and and favors those that ultimately decide whether products should be purchased or not, that are the consumers, the citizens. So that's all fine. Now, if we, on the contrary, interpret the emphasis on fairness as an attack on the idea of efficiency, I think that 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 I would oppose. I would be opposed to and i think that that would be a mistake um because if you want to look at you know the disposable income of individuals or their mental health or the environment you have other instruments competition law is about competition and it's about ensuring that the markets work well and you know within that you know limited scope that as a result consumers are better off but better off as a result of the competitive process So I think that I am concerned about fairness in opposition to market efficiency. I'm very much in favor of the idea of fairness as the result of the competitive
0: process. And turning to efficiencies, Jorge, you'll know well the now 30-year debate about whether greater accounts should be taken in merger-related efficiencies in the Commission's application of the merger regulation. What's your sense of the current state of play and what advice do you give clients about whether it's useful to devote time and resource to running an efficiencies defense?
1: The answer to that would be different in the context of 101 and in the context on merger control. In 101, I think that if you're doing a self-assessment, you need to look at 101.1, 101.3, and therefore you need to look at efficiencies. If in merger control, I think that efficiency defenses are useless. I think that is a waste of time. Uh, in general there may be an exception but typically they're 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 useless and the reason is burden of proof and a standard of proof the burden of proof is brutal i mean just to jump the first hurdle and prove verifiability i mean i've seen i've seen analysis of efficiencies turned down that I couldn't believe. Not done by us, economists, even done by, you know, people that were in business for 20, 30 years, using exactly the same models that they used in order to estimate or to organize production in their companies for 30 years. And then suddenly somebody in the case team or in the chief economist team says, well, but that's not the right way of doing things. The right way of doing things is this other the one. And that disproves your your efficiencies and how you are gonna reorganize production following the merger. I think that the burden of proof is tremendous. But then there is also the standard of proof. I mean, merger specificity, pass on is so complicated, very complicated. And therefore, you know, because of that, likely the chances are that your analysis dies at one point or another. However, that doesn't mean that you don't spend some time and effort trying to understand and document and properly substantiate the pro-competitive reasons for your merger. And and that's important for the following reason, is that if you're gonna say to the agencies, to the commission, I'm gonna merge, and this is not for anti-competitive reasons, it must be that you have a pro-competitive reason. I mean, the alternative is to say, I'm gonna merge, and I don't know why, just an idiot and want to build an empire, okay? So you need to have a pro-competitive story. If you don't have a pro-competitive story, the default is not gonna be you're an idiot, is you're evil and want to increase prices so you really need to have a credible story but that doesn't mean that you need to take it to the point in which you're going to jump all the hurdles all that you need to do is to have your credible your credible story now what i would i i would hope is that the commission and other agencies as they place more and more emphasis on dynamic competition they realize that some of these issues that we are now discussing under the heading of efficiencies are actually not efficiencies are All the dimensions of competition, non-price dimensions of competition that should be modeled as part of the competitive assessment. If we think about a merger in telecoms, we shouldn't deal with, for example, network investment in networks as an efficiency defense. Companies compete in prices and compete in quality. If they do that, the burden of proof and the standard of proof is change. Am I hopeful? I don't know. I hope so, but, but but I cannot predict what they will do.
0: Jorge, right, a final question on merger control. One of the most significant developments over the last few years has been the change in the U.S. agency's rhetoric, which has um, found common cause, I think, with agency heads elsewhere in Australia, Germany, the U.K., in viewing enforcement as having been too permissive and talking about a sweeping reassessment and so forth. A couple of questions. What's your reaction? Do you think we've reached a peak or this is going to continue? How has it affected the European Commission's uh, approach and thinking?
1: Well, I think that um, the U.S. for years has been more permissive than the EU. And, and I think that some of the criticisms that may be raised against DOJ and FTC you know, may be justified there. I'm not an expert. I do limited amount of work in the U.S., but I don't think that they, they apply to the EU. Some of the criticisms are greatly exaggerated in my, in my opinion. I think that the references that we often hear about all the companies that have been acquired by the big tech leave me cold to tell you the truth. In fact, my concern is that if we block big tech companies or any other large company from acquiring other companies, what we are is doing is foreclosing one of the most reasonable and honorable exit mechanisms for companies. And we are condemning those companies either to succeed or to go bankrupt. And that's a bad idea. Uh, I think that it will chill uh, the creation of new companies uh, and investment. My sense is that the commission feels, you know, to some extent, uh, under peer review. You know, they are criticized because they are more open in the way that they consider remedies because, you know, they sometimes even take behavioral remedies. I think that they should play aloof. and do what they have have done over the years. I don't think that there is any objective element of proof that suggests that the commission has been under-enforcing the merger control tool. And therefore, I don't see any reason to change. If others have done, they should change. And I wish them luck because for the time being, they are trying to change, but the courts in the US don't seem to be going along. So, you know, no reason to change here.
0: Jorge, I'd like to turn to another area of practice you and other economists played an important role in encouraging the European Commission to apply a more economically grounded approach to the application of Article 102, and you referred to the Qualcomm case earlier on, uh, in particular in cases involving exclusionary practices where you helped to champion the as-efficient competitor test. The pendulum seems to have shifted a little. We've heard criticism from the General Court's President, Mark van der Walde, about the Commission's economic approach. There have been setbacks before the court. The Commission seems to be reframing the role played by the as-efficient competitor test. couple of questions. Are you concerned that we're reverting to a form-based approach, or do you think uh, the economically-oriented approach is essentially hardwired into the system and will survive?
1: I really don't know about uh, the latter, but I do fear that we are that the pendulum is swinging against evidence-based competition law and, and and in favor of more formalistic competition law, and and I'm worried because I think that the reason for that for that evolution is is the wrong one. You know, I would be in favor of formalism if, as a result of you know our experience and learning from competition from from you know various cases, we concluded okay, there are certain practices which are going to produce anti-competitive effects. Therefore, why bother doing analysis, et cetera, et cetera, when we know that by and large, they're going to be problematic and, you know, and, and, and the exceptions are rare, as, as it happens with cartels. Yeah, If that was the motivation behind the adoption of per se rules, I think that I would be in favor. Now, I'm against when the motivation, and I think that this is the motivation, is since I cannot prove effects, I'm going to assume effects. Since I cannot prove that this is an infringement by effect, I'm going to assume that it's an infringement by object. You would say, that's theory. Actually, let me tell you an an anecdote. It was a long time ago. I was hired to advise the judge in the Irish High Court in the famous Irish Beef case. Uh, The case was very interesting, and the Irish Competition Authority presented an effects case, which was rebutted by the parties with an efficiencies defense. I think that the judge and of course, since I was his, his advisor, I agreed with him, concluded that the, the Irish Competition Authority had not established likely effects. It also concluded, by the way, that the efficiency defense was not very good. But since they had not established effects, decided, OK, prop, no problem. OK, now the Irish Competition Authority appeal and there was a, refer, a referral to the European Court of Justice. And the appeal... What it says is that the judge shouldn't have decided this because this is a restriction by object. And eventually, the ECJ said it is a restriction by object. So it was a restriction by object because nobody was able to prove that it was a restriction by effect. I that's, I think, that contrary to the definition of what a restriction by object is as we understand it today, especially following you know Carte Bancaire, etc. An object, a restriction by object has to be one that is almost always, almost you know, you have you can presume that it is going to prove is going to result in effects. But not one in which you cannot prove effects and therefore you try to use the formalism, the, the formalistic route to avoid the discipline of having to prove like effects. That's my concern. My concern is that if formalism is driven by, by these considerations, then we're getting into in, 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 in the wrong direction. And it reminds me of a quote of this intellect, American intellectual Mencken. You know? Mencken had this sentence that I love, who said, every complex problem has a simple answer that is wrong. And you know, I'm pretty sure that every competition policy can be solved with a per se rule. In many cases, in most cases, except perhaps with cartels, is gonna be the wrong one.
0: You've appeared before courts all over the world and you're familiar with judicial review hearings and full merits appear hearings. How satisfactory do you find the European courts hearing of economic uh, testimony compared, for example, with the hearings that you get in other court uh, systems?
1: Well, I have uh, complained about that in, in writing, although I think that, let me tell you that, I think that there is a lot of variation from one case to another. In fact, I think that there is a lot of variation from one chamber to another, and from one panel to, to another. I've been in cases in which it has been clearly stated, economists don't speak in this room, and, and in others in which I was grilled with uh, with with questions from the from the judges. So there is a lot of variation. But economics is difficult. And and you know judges need not understand the nitty-gritty of economics. And and how can they understand what's going on? And how can they discriminate between the position of different people? Well, Neil Nobun Subsole, you don't need to invent anything. It's called cross-examination and then perhaps concurrent evidence or hot tubbing. Do we have cross-examination in the courts in Luxembourg? No. Do we have hottabbing? No. So all that they have is the written reports and perhaps the old question. I think that it's going to be very difficult for judges to understand what economists write in in, in, in written reports. The proof of that is that in UPST, I think that the judges understood what was going on because there was a judge, the judge rapporteur, that decided to ask lots of questions. And when he was not satisfied. Ask then the commission and the parties to produce further reports clarifying the, their answers, and that's when he got it.
0: Oh, well, he you referred to to at least two or three instances, where I think, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, where the commission you felt hadn't given proper regard to the economic evidence in 102 cases or perhaps merger control cases, but that on appeal the court was able to consider that. To so what do you attribute that? Is it a certain confirmation bias or reluctance to be persuaded by economics, the judicial level? is the court more open? I
1: think that the reason has to do with the nature of the of uh, of the competition law enforcement in in Europe. Look, I think that we have an inquisitorial system, and you know coming from Espania, it may seem that uh, strange that I'm referring to the inquisition we we are experts in that but it doesn't mean any offense. I think that the idea is that you have an individual or, or, a, or a group, the case team and, and then the commission hierarchy that uh, looks at the evidence and comes with with a decision, as opposed to an adversarial system in which you have decision maker who is listening to one party and to the other on a level playing field, and then he makes a decision based on what, what he or she hears. And we know from economic theory, and actually a famous paper in the Journal of Political Economy by Jean Tiron and Matthias de Batripon, that these two systems of inquiry are fundamentally different. And the analogy is the following. In the adversarial system, what you have is like if you have uh, two chess players and one chess player is said, you play white and you have to do the best thing possible for white. You cannot cheat. You cannot lie. You cannot you know, do you know, to do fancy things. what you have, to, you have to play with white, but you have to do the best possible thing with white. And the same is the instruction. The same instructions go to the player with, with black. And they do. And then you're sitting there and you see them playing and then you can make a decision about who plays best. The Inquis- Inquisitor is like the, a character in, in Stephen Zweig's novel, The Royal Game, who plays simultaneously with black and white. What happens to that character in Stephen Zweig's? He gets completely mad. He loses it. It's impossible to do the best for the white if you're playing white and black, unless you are intentionally biased in favor of the white or vice versa. The beauty of the adversarial system is that you have somebody doing the best possible case for that side and best, and you have somebody else doing the opposite. And then the decision maker can choose. If we change the system, I think that we would have you know, better cases, not only in terms of, because there would be better economics. I think that because there would be better law because I think that would be better analysis of the evidence, actual evidence, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So having seen the administrative system at work for 30 years, you've become a convert to the judicial system. Definitely. Oh, right, let me turn to cartels. I know you do a lot of work in the field. I think you've addressed this, but let me ask the question anyway. Do you see any role for, for economics and economists in administrative proceedings, given the Commission's readiness to bring by-object cases And is the real action for you in advising on follow-on damages cases? And if so, how do you see that practice evolving?
1: So no role for economists in plain vanilla cartel cases in price-fixing cases. Marginal role in some cases involving exchanges of information. Not all of them. Some of them, the fact pattern is such that you you see immediately that they can be assimilated by the commission to a price-fixing arrangement, and then there is nothing that we economists can do. Some of them are in. In the fringe or in the margins and there we can we can help somewhat and by the way only in one way which is to prove that the exchange had a proper competitive rationale and could not have an anti-competitive effect not that it was not likely that it could not have an anti-competitive effect and there are very few cases that uh, that would fit that uh, that set of circumstances so our role in damage in cartel cases is on damages or damages more more generally I think that all consultancies are doing a lot of work there. There are a number of conceptual problems that I think that eventually we need to solve. I think that there is a fundamental inconsistency between the presumption that is in in the law, the presumption of effects in the law, and the way that the guidelines are structured, the guidelines for the estimation of damages, which basically propose a methodology where the presumption is that there is no effect. So there is a fundamental inconsistency that generates lots of problems. There are problems, deontological problems, because the methodologies in the guidelines, as applied by economists, can be game, and economists game them. And I think that there are serious deontology problems. And and I think that there are a problem also with with the judges that have to see those cases. In some jurisdictions, they are highly qualified. In others, you know, they are super clever, but you know, they do in the morning a family case, you know, and in the afternoon they are doing these damages case and and that cannot work. So we would need to go in the direction that, for example, IP law has gone with, a specialized, with specialized judges, in my opinion.
0: Jorge, one of the big developments of the last few years, of course, you'll be familiar with is the adoption of regulatory regimes for the digital platforms. What's your reaction to digital regulation? Do you have any misgivings? And do you think antitrust at the end of the day or regulation by by antitrust experts is really capable of addressing the issues that have been identified with respect to the digital platforms. Should the market be left to do its work, or do you think tools are needed outside of antitrust?
1: So for years, I was concerned about the possibility of type two errors in these digital markets. OK, I'm also concerned about possibility of type one errors. OK, I've seen lots of incumbents in many sectors complaining about the entry of big techs, but actually they were complaining about entry, you know, and they were trying to protect their turf. So there are type one errors, but I was concerned about type two errors. Why? Because the strategies followed by some of these companies are new. And as a result of that, you know, we may be missing, you know, anti-competitive strategies simply because we have not seen them in operation before or because of our understanding of these markets was incorrect. It's not saying that I was convinced that there were many type two errors. I was concerned about the possibility of type two errors. And therefore, I thought that it would be a good idea to have a new competition tool, to have the market investigation tool in Europe. Okay. And I know that we are sitting here in London and there are lots of problems with the market investigation tool, but I thought that that was missing in the arsenal of the, of the European Commission and many continental competition agencies. What I wasn't looking for is ex-ante regulation. In fact, I think that I was clearly against ex-ante regulation because it seemed to me that the idea of ex-ante regulation is inconsistent with the very existence of dynamic markets where companies change strategies and business models almost continuously. So unfortunately, the market investigation tool didn't materialize. I, I actually think that for you know potentially legal problems and strategic problems within the way in which the treaty works in in Europe, and we ended up with ex ante regulation. And 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 I think that uh, this story has taught me to understand much better that English saying that uh, be careful with what you wish. So I think that um, given what has happened, I think that we would have been better off enhancing antitrust enhancing 101 and 102 in particular. I'm worried about this ex ante regulation regime. I'm pretty sure that those involved, Thomas and the others at Digicom, will do the best to make sure that it's implemented fairly and correctly. But I cannot see how you can have an ex ante regulation regime in an industry in industries that are so incredibly dynamic.
0: Oh, well, I have a final question before the quick fire questions at the end, totally different topic. Climate change, sustainability clearly existential issues of our time what's your view on the role that economists can play in enabling agencies to take account of uh, sustainability objectives in enforcement
1: i mean nick one thing is what we can do and the other thing is what i think we should do what we can do i mean you tell us you want to estimate out of market efficiencies we can we will think about methodologies by which we can estimate those out of market efficiencies they will be require assumptions and they will be more or less robust and as time goes by we will improve them over time and eventually you will be able to calculate those out-of-market efficiencies and perhaps even balance them with whatever happens within the market pro-competitive or anti-competitive we can do that should we do it i very much doubt it i think that fighting climate change is super important not that i'm not in denial i'm absolutely persuaded and if I had any doubt, I think that the spending this summer in Spain was enough to persuade me that, you know, eh, what what awaits us is not very nice. But I think that there are other instruments. And I've always been a big believer of uh, of the so-called Jan Timbergen's principle. Jan Timbergen is a Dutch economist, was a Dutch economist who got the Nobel Prize, you know, I think that one of the first uh, Nobel Prize in economics. And he said, two problems, two instruments, three problems, three instruments. And problems and instruments. And I think that competition law should be doing, should have as an objective the protection of the competitive process to the best interest of consumers in the markets involved.
0: Jorge, oh, hey, thank you for that. So, a few quick fire questions to finish off. What advice would you give someone beginning a career in antitrust economics?
1: Study lots of economics, but in particular, study statistics and econometrics, become a better economist, and study a little bit of competition law so that you can you know, interact with your, the, the counsel in your cases and understand what they really need so that you don't end up producing fancy studies that are just pointless. Improve your written and oral communication skills, because it's not just about doing good economics, it's about conveying those messages effectively. And own your cases and own your deadlines and treat your client and counsel as your partners, not as your enemies. And last thing, leave tears at home.
0: If you could change one thing about EU antitrust enforcement, what would it be?
1: Well, I think that I mentioned it before. I would move it from an inquisitorial system, the administrative system, and I would make it more adversarial. If we cannot do that at the commission level or a number of political constraints, I would try to do that at at the court level. And if we cannot do that, at least I think that we need to be more serious in the way that we, do, we deal with evidence. I think that clear evidentiary rules, clear rules about what is admissible and not admissible, and clear uh, processes to elicit the right evidence and, and to test the evidence would be, you know, would make a real difference. Jorge, your proudest achievement and your greatest regret. I mean, I'm proud of my family, of my wife and, and my kids. And I'm proud of my my academic research. Greatest regret: I've not published yet in the American Economic Review, and uh, and the other regret is that I don't have the time to do all that I would like to do.
0: Those are great regrets and great things to be proud of. And finally, Huawei, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? Well, I'll tell you the area or the you know the activity in which I'm spending
1: most time after my family and my work, which is a foundation that I have created with a series of friends of mine. It's called DADORIS. And the goal of this foundation is identify very clever kids all throughout Spain, for the time being, it's Spain. People that in you know, the university exams get uh, grades between nine and 10, nine out of 10, but that are very, very poor. They belong to very poor families. They may be the kids of immigrants, You know, people that are Really struggling, people that make less than two thousand euros per head in the family a year. And we fund money. We give them money, we sponsor them because the scholarships of that our government grants are insufficient. These guys, their families need them to work, so we pay them so that they can sustain their families. And we give them mentors, people that can coach them. and this is this is something that we started working five years ago. It's starting to deliver. We have now one guy from Gypsy family who has finished number one in uh, in in law in the most prestigious university in Madrid and is now studying to become a judge and maybe the first gypsy judge in in Spain. Another guy who is now who basically we found in the streets because he was left there by his family and is now going to complete a master's in in quantum physics in Zurich and many others. And I am so happy about this and and I I want to spend increasing amounts of time doing this. This is where I will retire most likely.
0: Oh hey, that's a brilliant a brilliant end to a fascinating podcast. It's been a pleasure to have known you all these years. I look forward to working together in the future. Me too. And thanks for spending today with us. I'm Nick Levy and I look forward to welcoming you to our next podcast.